Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. All of us in our daily lives deal with choices and judgments that regularly include decisions about what is defined as ethical. Our families and cultures shape what we think about when it comes to ethics. Even television shows like What Would You Do or Dr. Phil engage us in thinking about ethics. The major religions devote considerable attention to human behavior, especially bearing on ethical practices. There are certain contexts, however, where the need and even requirement for making ethical decisions is so frequent and common and interwoven into the context, usually with legal consequences of some sort, that organizations that are involved in overseeing and managing those contexts employ ethicists to help guide them in their choices and decisions. One such context is the practice of medicine and the daily experiences in hospitals. Mary Caldwell's job was being an ethicist in one of the local hospitals in Asheville, North Carolina. She is here to help us understand ethics more fully and especially to help us understand how ethical choices and decisions are made in the context of hospitals and medicine. Mary will give us insight into the work of the ethicist in that context. Well, welcome, Mary. Thank you for being with me. While we begin by uh, you telling us how it is that uh, you got a job as an ethicist at a hospital and what you did. Thank you, David, for inviting me to talk about ethics. There are a few things I enjoy more than talking about ethics. I worked at the hospitals. There were originally two hospitals in Asheville, St. Joseph's, which was a Roman Catholic hospital, and Mission, which was a community hospital. I started working in 1989 at St. Joseph's Hospital as a chaplain, and I loved doing that work. I worked primarily on the inpatient psychiatric unit, and over the years, I became involved with the ethics committee. During those same years, the two hospitals merged, and eventually Mission bought St. Joseph's from the Sisters of Mercy, so it became one hospital, and I got even more involved with the ethics committee that served both hospitals. Um, during these years, the, as the hospitals merged and as the pastoral care departments merged, there were lots of changes underway. And the more I became interested in ethics, the more I got to looking around to see where I could learn more. I discovered that at UT Knoxville, there was an excellent program in the Department of Philosophy. And so while still working, I began traveling to Knoxville, and it took me four years to complete the degree, but I did an MA in philosophy with a concentration in medical ethics. All of this time, I was still serving as a chaplain who was on the ethics committee. And then the ethicist who had been David Blackman since the early 90s was invited to become the chair of pastoral care. And he turned to me and said, would you like to do ethics? So I never actually applied for a job as an ethicist, but I became an ethicist that way. I loved doing ethics at Mission. I, I really believe that I had the most interesting job in the whole place. 
the ethicist basically does three things. One is ethics consultation. And we had a very active and busy ethics consult service at Mission during those years until I retired two years ago. We did consults all over the hospital, sometimes at the request of physicians, sometimes at the request of nurses, sometimes occasionally at the request of families. And that can be anything from a simple question that needs to be answered to something that could take several days and several meetings to sort through. In addition to consults, I also did, and still do in some quarters, a lot of teaching of ethics. I taught nurses, I taught residents, I taught ethics in the community, I taught ethics at UNCA, I taught in lots of places. And the third thing that ethicists do that I was involved with is policy work. For instance, a few years ago, the hospital acquired a new technology in the cardiac field. And some of the doctors who were kind of thinking ahead said, let's look at how we want to deal with the potential ethical dilemmas that might come up as a result of using this particular new technology. And so I was involved early on in the process of acquiring the equipment, training the staff, and thinking through how we would approach potential ethical dilemmas. And sure enough, we did have ethical dilemmas once the technology was in place. So ethics is one of those jobs, like my granny used to say, you never know what a day will bring. Because there, you might go two or three weeks without a consult, and then you might have four in one day. And then you work hmm. around everything else, and you kind of need to be able to make your own schedule and be flexible to do the work of an ethicist. Well, you, you just mentioned ethical dilemmas, and you said that that was, that was kind of uh, part of your focus. Uh, and so what's the ethical part, and what's the dilemma part? That's a great question. A dilemma occurs when you don't know which is the right course of action, which is the right choice. And it has to do with ethics because you want to, you seek to do the right thing. Sometimes we don't know what to do because you and I may not agree on what is the right thing. Or we may not be able to communicate well with each other about what is the right thing. And then we need to think about whose right thing we're talking about. Is it the right thing for the patient or the right thing for the family or the right thing for the nurse? Whose, whose opinion, whose stakeholders um, are the ones who, who get what they want to happen? An ethical dilemma occurs when there isn't a good choice and you're typically making choices among less than good choices, if there's a clear path to the right thing, then we don't have a dilemma and you and I will agree and we will proceed. But that is often not nearly as clear as we'd like it to be. Some of the, some of the ethical dilemmas we deal with are pretty simple and straightforward. For instance, we might be asking if we have a patient who is in the ICU, who is no longer able to make or communicate decisions, whether from being on a ventilator or heavily medicated or suffering from dementia, then we might be looking at if this patient cannot make her own decisions, who will make decisions on her behalf? 
Um, well, you know, you're not dealing here just with hypotheticals. I mean, I know you, you said part of your, your task was to educate, and I know that you kind of bring up then hypotheticals to folks, but, but in, in, in much of what you did, you were actually dealing with real life situations, right? Yes. Okay. Um, well, what did you do then? uh to when you had a consult um what did that involve uh, that's a great question um if it's a simple question such as who makes decisions for granny when she can't make her own decisions we turn to north carolina law because north carolina law spells out the order in which decision makers are to step up and make decisions for patients who can't make their own. For instance, if I am unable to make my own decisions, I have prepared a document called a healthcare power of attorney, and my husband will be my decision maker. If I had a legal guardian, that person would be my decision maker. But most people don't have a legal guardian or have have they filled out a healthcare power of attorney. So many people then would turn to who the law spells out as the decision maker for me or for you for instance it would be a spouse our spouse would make our decision and if we don't have a spouse very often as people get older they're widows or widowers and there's not a spouse available if there's not a spouse then the law says the majority of the parents and children of an adult age. So the law spells out exactly who will make a decision. So when a consult comes down to a simple question like, wait a minute, who's the decision maker here? We simply look at who the legal decision maker is. On the other hand, we can have a much more complex kind of ethical dilemma. And I'll describe an example that's actually kind of a conflation of the kinds of cases that occurred over and over. Imagine with me that we have uh, an elderly patient who's come in from a nursing home, maybe somebody in their late 80s or early 90s. And imagine that this person is no longer able to communicate with us, that maybe this person's had a stroke or some other event has, has brought them to the hospital. They're in the hospital, they're treated immediately in the emergency department, they're taken to the intensive care unit, perhaps put on a ventilator, and since COVID's been in the news so much for two years now, people who never heard of ventilators two years ago are now familiar with what a ventilator is. So you imagine your patient's on a ventilator in the ICU, and sometimes we can't get a hold of the family in the, in the first hour or two. So imagine that the family shows up later that day and the doctor has done lots of tests and lots of assessments and consulted with maybe two or three other physicians who are specialists, maybe a cardiologist or a neurologist or a pulmonologist. Um, lots of doctors get involved in these complex cases. And imagine that we've decided and concluded, and it's really abundantly clear based on CAT scans or MRIs or any other kind of testing that our patient is not likely to survive. So we have a patient here who we know is approaching the end of life. 
and the doctors explain this to the family and more often than you might imagine the family will then say we want you to do everything don't let granny die do everything keep her alive and we have technology such that we can keep people alive far beyond what i would personally consider reasonable or appropriate so then the, we go by several days and sometimes we realize that the family just needs some time to understand what's really going on and to accept that the person they love and the person who's cared for them and been part of their lives forever is going to die so then we have a dilemma and the doctors may say i really hate to keep doing this because mrs so-and-so is suffering i can see that she's suffering and we're keeping her alive when we really feel like that the ethical approach would be to let her go peacefully so then they will they will call other people in to help with this including sometimes calling for an ethics consult now that does not mean that i would go running in and say to the family you got to do this you don't have any choice because the family and their experience is a hugely important part of this whole story palliative care may become involved we may have more specialists come to meet with and talk with the family and very often in a situation like this the family will understand after a few days what's going on but there have been times when we've seen stories like this and read about them in the literature where families absolutely completely will not accept that someone's dying there was a case that was in the news within the past month and some of our listeners may have seen this story a gentleman in michigan i believe it was had covid had been in the hospital was on a ventilator for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and his wife just was simply unable to get a hold of the fact that he was not going to survive and the doctor set her down and said we are we are going to turn off the ventilator your husband will not survive and she became so upset she arranged for some sort of medical flight to take him to a hospital in texas which was willing to accept him so he was transferred to texas and in that hospital the first few days she was giving press conferences saying with a great deal of hope and elation and joy oh he's getting better he's improving but within a few more days the patient died and i don't know any clinical people who would have been surprised at that and i just felt so sad and sorry for this woman that she could not understand and get a hold of the fact that her husband was not going to survive you know david i think this points to one of the one of the problems with with healthcare in this culture which is that we live in a culture that denies death that doesn't really understand that every single one of us will die one day we hope it'll be a long time from now and we know it'll be sad but every person alive on this planet will die
and we're not very good at accepting that. Well, and how does that if 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 we were good at it, uh, what changes would you see occurring? That's a great question. I have a friend who was a physician at Mission for many years, and I spoke with her just just this week, earlier this week. She had uh, moved to a state out west, and she was practicing in a small hospital in a small town. And she said to me, you know, we don't have these dilemmas where I am now. And I said, really? Tell me more. And she said, the people I care for in this hospital are mostly rural folks who live on ranches. And they've lived with animals, and they've lived in, in places and locations that have been harsh and the climate is rough and making a living is hard and they seem to just have accepted and become more comfortable with the notion that we will all die. And so she said, when we, when we get into a situation where somebody's in the ICU and the doctor says to the family, uncle Joe isn't going to make it, then uncle Joe will sit up and say, then let me go. Don't resuscitate me. Don't put me on machines. It's my time. Let me go. And when I asked her, interestingly, I said, are these people of faith? Are they are they coming out of a, a place where their belief in an afterlife might influence that? And she said, not really. They're no more religious than the people I worked with for many years in the South. But it seemed to have something to do with a different culture than the culture, the relatively urban culture that many Americans live in, where we're so removed from the cycle of life, so so removed from uh, the realization and the knowledge and the and the upfront experience of death. Um, I would imagine that if we gathered a group of thirty to forty year olds. Very few, if any of them, would ever have been with a person who was dying or have seen uh, a dead body other than in a funeral home. So how would you approach changing the culture then? Through education? Do you, I get to? <laughs> I mean, you know, would, would, would a group of medical ethicists go out into the community and say, look, folks, we need to talk about death, you know? You know, interestingly, a few years ago, um, we had a program at my church at First Baptist, um, and it was presented by a physician who at the time was, a, was working at Duke. His name was Dr. Raymond Barfield, and the title of his presentation was why medicine needs the church. Uh, his wife is a minister, so he has sort of a foot in both worlds. He also taught in the divinity school as well as the, the medical school there, as well as caring for patients. And his, his contention was that, that medicine, that doctors, that nurses, that hospitals need the church because the church is where we should be talking about our mortality. The church is where sh we should be thinking about and being able to talk about the fact that we're all going to die and what that means, not only for the future, but for how we live our lives now and what it means to be people of faith, knowing that our lives will not last forever. And if we can come to the hospital 
at a time when we're sick or in crisis, knowing I may not get well, that could change how everything looks and feels for patients and family. Mm. Okay. Well, let's go back to the ethical dilemma part. Uh, and, and you talk about that uh, you see as a useful tool uh, or a set of tools, really, in helping navigate ethical decisions or ethical theories. So explain that. Thank you for asking that. Of all the many times and places I taught, whether I had one hour with a group of nurses or half a day or two days, I always included at least a brief section on ethical theory because I believe that it's so terribly important. Ethical theories are different approaches or different ways of looking at ethics. Ethics is actually a branch of philosophy. And it's a huge branch of philosophy, and there are ethical theories and approaches that have been around since Aristotle, since ancient Greece, when the Greeks talked about and thought about what does it mean to live a good life. They weren't worried about medical ethical dilemmas, although Hippocrates did write some things that are still part of the, of the oath that new physicians take. They were interested in living a good life. And then throughout the history of the church, there have been conversations about what is the way to live a good life? How do we know right from wrong? What, what do we do when we're facing difficult choices? And it comes down to now, as we look at it, and this includes, of course, the history of these theories, essentially three broad categories of theories. The first is what we call consequentialism. And that means we look at the consequences of a decision that we make rather than the act itself. One form of consequentialism is utilitarianism, which looks at the most good for the most people. But there are some problems with that, because if you're looking at the most good for the most people, you're likely to leave out the good for a minority who may be part of the group that you're looking at. So consequentialism has its place, but most often its place is in public health when we're looking at broad strokes of health care, when we're looking at why should people get vaccinated against COVID. You and I get vaccinated because we want to protect ourselves, but we also get vaccinated because we know there are vulnerable people around us who cannot get vaccinated. For a long time, it was young people who couldn't get vaccinated. And even now, small children are just beginning to be able to be vaccinated. So I get my vaccine, so I'm less likely to transmit COVID to somebody else who's not able to be vaccinated or whose immune system is fragile and vulnerable. So that's where we would think in terms of consequentialism and utilitarianism. I want to do the most good for the most people. So the vaccine not only protects me, it protects the community. Second broad category of ethical theory comes from Immanuel Kant, and it's called deontology, which is a fancy word for saying we have duties and obligations. It is probably impossible to overemphasize how important Kant's thinking has been in Western philosophy. 
Kant said that we are to do our duty, that we are to do the right thing always, no matter the consequences. And this can sound somewhat rigid, and that's a greatly oversimplified way of thinking about it. But to Kant, it was really important that we respect human beings, that we not use people, and that we do our duty and value every person. The third broad category, it really is kind of a very broad category, typically described as a virtue ethic. And this has to do not with the rules that we follow or not with the consequences, but with the person making the ethical decision. Virtue ethics goes all the way back to Aristotle, who said a virtuous person will make the right choice and that we can practice virtues and we can we can learn through practice to become more virtuous people. Now, virtue ethics comes and goes through the history of Christian theology as well as Western philosophy. And then late 20th century, we began to see more and more feminism show up in, in philosophy in, in the academy. And some of the feminist philosophers began to say, hmm, all of these ethical theories, these come from a bunch of old white men from Europe. Is that really how people make ethical decisions? And so they did some studying and some thinking, and many of these early feminist philosophers began to realize that people don't always make their, their decisions strictly based on what is the reasonable thing to do, that people make decisions based on how we are connected to other human beings, based on who we love and who we don't love, based on how things will affect a family, about how things matter to the person that we're caring for. And so this is where we find some attention becoming more and more evident to the story of our patient. Our patient isn't just a bunch of numbers in a clinical chart showing test results. Our patient comes from somewhere. Our patient is embedded in a family or a community. Our patient is connected to other human beings. And all of that matters when we begin to think about the right thing to do. So the virtue ethic has kind of taken off in multiple directions, including narrative ethics, ethics of care. And when we get ready to think about an ethical dilemma, we often turn to these questions to bring together a story so that we can know more about who we are considering making ethical decisions with and for. So you have three broad categories, but you don't simply sit down and say, well, today's Tuesday, so I'll be an, uh, a deontologist today, and tomorrow I'll make all my decisions based on um, John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, who were utilitarians. Um, all of these theories come into play in varying degrees at times, and there's no, no one theory that's going to cover every situation. So knowing these theories helps us think more carefully and more clearly about how we're going to approach a dilemma. Well, do you then uh, kind of go through each theory per case to help kind of form this story that you're talking about? Well, not, not usually in a formal way, 
but sometimes the language of a theory will help us communicate with each other. So if you if you're the doctor and I'm the ethicist and we're standing at the bedside, I might say to you, Dr. David, I'm not sure what the consequences of that course of action will be. And you might say to me, well, Mary, I think that it would be wrong to do X, Y, Z. So we, we may be subconsciously relying on these theories and using the language of them without a checklist that says, here's what Kant would do, or here's what um, the feminists would do. It's, it all becomes kind of a, a web of, of theory that is that gives us a network that we can work out of. Now, in addition to theory, the handy tools that we use at the bedside are the principles, what are typically known as the four ethical principles. And these four principles are widely known and widely discussed in clinical ethics. The principles are beneficence and non-maleficence, that is do good and do no harm. The third principle is autonomy, and the fourth principle is justice. Now, those are really, really convenient tools at the bedside to help us think about a dilemma, and that would be typically where I would start. What is the good we hope to do? What is the harm we hope to avoid? And very often, the harm we hope to avoid is suffering or pain. Now, pain can mostly be controlled, but pain and suffering are not the same thing. We may have a patient whose pain is well controlled, but who is nonetheless suffering. The, the first step I would always take with an ethical dilemma, almost always, would be to go to the unit where the patient is talk to the nurses because the nurses are there in 12-hour shifts and they are with that patient all day or all night. So they're much more familiar with the moment-to-moment -moment patient experience. And my first question would often be, is this patient suffering? And all the years I did this, I never once had a nurse say to me, what do you mean? Because they know, they know what suffering is. It's often emotional and mental and psychological and spiritual. So a patient may have his pain controlled, but may nonetheless be suffering. And the nurses, the good nurses, the experienced nurses, could tell me the little clues and signs they would see that would indicate to them that a patient may well be suffering. So. If we're going to rely on these kinds of principles, then the, the principle that is often listed first, but you'll notice I, I did not list it first, is autonomy. And that involves the right to participate in making decisions about your own care. Autonomy really began to come to the fore with the patient's rights movement when we go back as far as the 1960s and 70s. Prior to that, the notion in medicine was kind of a paternalistic idea that you would go to the doctor and the doctor would pat you on the shoulder and say, David, don't worry. It'll be fine. I'll take care of everything. You don't need to worry and may not even tell you what your diagnosis is. 
And then patients begin to say, wait a minute, I want to know what's wrong with me and I want to help talk to talk about, I want to learn about what options I have. I want you to help me think about how we proceed together. So autonomy became really, really important. And to my mind, for many years, autonomy had been had had too much weight to the point where patients would demand and get a whole lot of things that weren't necessarily appropriate or beneficial. But it's important to remember that autonomy is never absolute. In other words, imagine that I have had a terrible itch in my foot for a week and I have scratched and scratched and scratched. So I just take myself into the emergency department and I say, look, doc, my foot is itching. It is driving me nuts. I just want you to amputate. Now, would a doctor do that? Of course not. But some people have acted as though they believe that anything a patient wants, a patient should get. That isn't the case. It's important to remember that our doctors and nurses have autonomy too. And it is never right to expect a doctor to do something that he or she does not believe is appropriate. In other words, a good doctor would never amputate my foot just because it itched, um, because it would not be ethical for that doctor to do so. So autonomy, I think, needs to be balanced and, and kept in, a, in an appropriate sphere. And then justice, of course, has to do with how we, how we divvy up the resources we have. And I think everybody knows that there's not a whole lot of justice in the healthcare system as it exists right now in America. Well, develop that a little more because I was I was going to really kind of ask about the the justice question. So, uh, kind of help us understand uh, help us understand that dimension when when you're sitting at the bedside <laughs> and working through your principles. When we're sitting at the bedside, we don't think about justice as explicitly as we think about it when we're sitting in our offices in a theoretical way. I have never seen a doctor say to a patient or family, well, your brother really needs to have uh, these red pills. That would cure him, but they cost too much and you can't afford it, so we're not going to give them to him. I've never seen that happen in all the years I worked in hospitals. We give him the pills and then we figure out how we're going to pay for them or we don't worry about it. We give the patient what is needed. In fact, I would dare say most doctors and nurses don't even know what the red pills cost. They do the best that they can do, provide the best that they can provide for their patient. Justice comes when we sit back and look at the healthcare system as a whole and realize that poor people who do not have health insurance who do not have the resources to have a primary care physician and go for regular checkups, who don't have the resources to go to a clinic somewhere because they may live in an area where there isn't a clinic. Very often what has happened is that these folks get sick and they get sicker and sicker and sicker to the point where they can't wait any longer and they go to the emergency room. Well, care in the emergency room is much, much, much more expensive. It costs thousands of dollars for an emergency room visit when if this patient had been able to go to a doctor three, two weeks ago and get treated early, 
then we could have prevented the high cost of the emergency room visit. Now, many of these people come and they're treated in the emergency room. There is a federal law which says if somebody shows up at your emergency room, you have to see them and you have to at least stabilize this person. If you, if you can transfer them, you can do that, but not until you have stabilized that person. But if you're in an area where there aren't any other hospitals to transfer them to, then you're going to have to admit them and take care of them. And somehow that cost has to be borne somewhere, some way. So the system is so skewed. You and I have Medicare. So I don't have to worry about that. All the years I worked at the hospital, I had good insurance coverage through the hospital, through my job. Many people have good insurance through their jobs, but not everybody does. The Affordable Care Act helped a lot to provide some coverage for many people who've been able to take advantage of that. But we still have huge gaps in resources and how resources are allocated. Um, when you are called into a consult, um, is there, is there kind of a checklist that you go through, uh, to make sure you're covering all your bases? And, and, and the reason I asked about that, um, I guess I'm aware of, there's a, a fairly popular book, uh, developed by a doctor, uh, on checklist and it's being used in other places than just medicine. Cause I, I had read that, um, uh, President Obama uh, had checklists uh, that he would go through in making some of his decisions. Uh, and I'm assuming that that involved, included, you know, the ethical dimensions of those decisions that he was having to make. Uh, so how about you all? I mean, is that something that comes into play? Well, checklists are, are pretty commonly used now in medicine. For instance, if you go into the operating room and the patient's going in for surgery, there will be a checklist to make sure we have everything in place and everything is ready and we have, have not missed anything in getting a patient or the room or the staff ready for surgery. Uh, the work of ethics is a little messier than that. I, I would suppose that you could say I did use kind of a mental checklist in my mind, I would go through the principles. Um, and I would also meet with as many of the people involved with the case as I could to get a lot of different perspectives. So there were certainly steps I went through. And if you, you can certainly call that a checklist, I would gather information, I would talk to all the stakeholders, all the people who would know as much as as I could find out about the case, I would read the patient's chart. And if I came to sections of the chart that were really clinically detailed that I didn't understand, I would find a nurse or a doctor to explain it to me. The ethics chair, the chair of the ethics committee uh, during all the years I did this was always a physician. And if an ethics consult became complicated or particularly messy, the physician would, would get involved and would explain things to me on a clinical level in ways that I could understand because I have no clinical training. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. Uh, of course, it, uh, I did pick up a few things over the years, but I would not certainly consider myself a clinical expert um, when it came to the patient's care. 
Well, when it comes to policy, uh, you said that you were often involved in the development of policies. Um, is that the rules? Is that what it is? Policies are, are rules that have to be applied in, in certain contexts? I would say that in my experience, policies offer guidelines. This is how we do it here. This is the right way to do it. This is the best way to do it. And many times the policies are guided by the legal thing to do, the legal way to do things. So we don't want to break any laws and we don't want to violate a patient's rights in any way. So policies are often designed to ensure that that doesn't happen. Policies range from everything, how you go about preparing the operating room for a patient coming in for, for surgery to how you take care of your staff. Um, what are your staff guidelines? What do we do if we have a question about staff behavior? One of the, one of the interesting kinds of policies that the ethics committee dealt with. Now, since I, since I retired before COVID, I was not involved in COVID policies, but I was in a meeting today with a physician in another hospital who has been very involved, but we looked at how we would handle, how we would handle an influx of patients with Ebola, which is what we were looking at some years ago as a potential kind of um, overwhelming disease that would occur potentially in this area. So we had to come up with policies for figuring out what do we do if we have more patients than we can take care of? And how do we decide who gets the last ventilator when we have three patients who need a ventilator and there's only one available? These are the kinds of things that have become very real, not just theoretical, but very real and concrete for many hospitals during COVID. Not only that, we had to think through how we would handle patients who were scheduled for surgery and we couldn't take care of them because we had too many patients with COVID. My, my brother-in-law's sister, who lives in another state, was scheduled to have open heart surgery. And she got a call a few days before saying, we have to cancel your surgery. We have so many COVID patients that we don't have a place for you after you've had your surgery. They rescheduled her and she did have it maybe two or three weeks later, but it was not when she had thought she was going to have it. And it was upsetting to have to have your surgery postponed. Open heart surgery hardly feels like an elective surgery. So there are ethicists right now who continue to deal with these dilemmas about caring for more people than we have space to care for or more people than we have staff to care for. And the policies around that need to be spelled out before you've got five patients in the emergency department who need one, one ventilator that's available. You, you can't just expect to sort that out on the spot. And I would never ask a physician at the bedside to make a decision like that 
just based on his or her gut feeling. We need policies to guide that. It isn't fair or appropriate or ethical to ask one physician or even two physicians in consultation to decide who gets the ventilator now. How much did you have to deal with legal as far as being in court? Oh, uh, I was never in court, um, but I was in close contact with hospital attorneys and with the risk department. There are always risk managers in hospitals, and they work really hard to make sure that we follow all the laws. Um, but I was never involved directly in a case that that went to court. But I worked closely with risk, and 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 they would sometimes call me, and I would sometimes call them if there was some question about how we should interpret something, or some question about the the legal way to proceed. Even laws are subject to interpretation, as you know. And I I didn't hesitate to argue with the lawyers. I usually didn't win, but if I felt that <laughs> if I felt that the way we were going to proceed was not the best thing for the patient, even though it was the legal thing, which sometimes happened, um, then I would not hesitate to speak out. Okay. Well, how does religion factor into this? Uh, because you know folks come as believers in different faiths. And, uh, so, and, and, and as you said, you started out, uh, with St. Joe's is a Catholic hospital and, and therefore, you know, it had an intentional religious dimension to what they, they were doing. So talk about how that came into play when you were working. Thank you for that question. I love that question. I'm particularly interested in in religious medical ethics um early on when when people begin to formalize the the discipline and the the role of the clinical ethicist early on in the 70s and 80s some of the leading voices in the world of medical ethics were theologians and they had some wonderful brilliant things to say but gradually the lawyers and the philosophers took over, and the theologians were sort of sent to the children's table with a little pat on the head saying, that's very nice, we'll take over now. But there are still some important voices thinking about and writing about and talking about religious ethics. Now, most of the patients who come to the hospital have some kind of religious background. When I worked at St. Joe's all those years, many years ago, when a patient was admitted, one of the standard questions asked was, what is your religious preference? And of course, in this area, if a patient hadn't set foot in a church in 40 years, they always said Baptist um, <laughs> because grandma was a Baptist. Or <laughs> uh, Very few religious bodies have any kind of formal statements about religious views on medical ethics. The Catholic Healthcare Directives is an exception to that, and that is a carefully written document from the American Catholic bishops, and it's actually designed to be policy for Catholic institutions. But it also applies in many ways to Catholic patients and Catholic individuals. And of course, that was important at St. Joe's when it was St. Joseph's Hospital. 
these documents, uh, the Catholic directives, are really beautifully written and are very, very reasonable. They do not require that a patient at the end of life be offered or given extraordinary treatment. In other words, they acknowledge that we're all going to die and that there are times when it is appropriate not to put somebody through a lot of fancy high-tech treatment that simply prolongs the suffering and postpones the death. These directives are really very helpful and, and as I say, are beautifully written. But I'm not aware of any other denomination which has a formal codified body of guidance for medical ethics. So what generally happens if you've got a family for whom this is really important is their pastor may well be involved. And so sometimes a conversation with the family and their pastor is a helpful way to sort things out and to talk things through. I remember many, many years ago working with a family and they were from a rural area and their church was very important part of their lives. And they came in, uh, the, the patient was no longer able to make a decision or have a conversation. And so the patient's spouse was in the role of having to figure out the best way to proceed. And the doctor explained over and over, day after day, what was going on. And the, the spouse just simply couldn't quite grasp what was going on. So the doctor asked me to sit in on a meeting. And it happened that, that day the patient and the family's pastor came with them. And so the doctor once again explained the clinical situation. The pastor understood it, turned to the spouse and explained it again in perhaps simpler language. And the pastor is the one who for this family had a really important role as authority. And when the pastor toward the end of the conversation said to the spouse, you know, I believe that this is what the patient would want us to do. The, the spouse readily agreed it was time to let the patient go. But it was the role of the pastor in that situation, and I watched it happen. I said next to nothing. It was the pastor and the pastor's authority that enabled the family to understand, to hear and understand the doctor's recommendation. So I think that sometimes a pastor can be a hugely helpful person to be involved in a conversation as well as important support for a family and a patient as they're going through serious illness, a crisis, or approaching the end of life. I think people sometimes think about I think sometimes there may be some distortions in in religion. Um, there is actually one study, and I'm sorry I didn't take time to look it up. There was a study a few years ago which found that the more religious people are, the more likely they are to cling to high-tech interventions and to cling to life, which is counterintuitive because one might assume that if you've got a patient and family who are believers and who are looking to an afterlife, that they would be more willing and able to move on to that place. But that didn't seem to be the case in this one study. 
But what I meant when I said that sometimes things become distorted, I remember as a chaplain many, many years ago working with a family and the patient was dying. The patient was right there in front of us near the end of his life. And the family turned to me and said, if he does die, God will raise him right back up. And that was just so poignant and heartbreaking for me because it was a family that simply was not yet able to accept what was happening. And of course, the patient died very soon and the patient stayed dead the rest of the day. Well, one of the people that has um, shaped our Baptist heritage, um, especially relating to medical ethics, is Wayne Oates. Uh, and he talked about uh, when religion gets sick. Um, that seems to be an example. Yes. Uh, that you just gave us uh, relating to that. And and I think that it, that's more likely to occur when people are in crisis. And losing someone you love is absolutely a crisis. And for some of the folks that we work with, it's the first time they've ever been in such a painful crisis kind of place. And it's it's frightening and it's awful. And we don't know how we're going to manage without this person. It's really scary. You know, uh, you mentioned Wayne Oates. Uh, back when I was doing training as a chaplain, I remember one of the things I learned from him because he was such a such a great teacher was how you go about praying with a family when you're in the middle of a waiting room and there's all kinds of people around and you don't want to make a show out of it and you don't want to call attention and embarrass people. So so I learned from him what, what he called a, an eye-open prayer in which I would say to a family, I am praying for your brother Fred and I am praying that God will take care of Fred and Fred will be healed. And I'm praying that Fred's doctors will be guided. In other words, you say the prayer, just slightly altering the language so that you don't embarrass everybody. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah, a way notes yeah. prayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just kind of as a, as a wrap up, um, what else do you think we need to know that you want to, want to tell us before we sign off? Uh, I would like to say a word about talking about the future with your family, with your loved ones. Many people have filled out a living will, and that's an important and helpful thing to do. But far more important than filling out a document is that the people who will speak for you know what you want, what you value, and that they agree to honor your wishes. In other words, my husband is my decision maker and he knows what I want. He knows that I don't want to be kept alive on machines once we reach a point where the doctors say that getting better is not an option. He knows that I don't want to be left in a situation where I would be in a severely debilitated condition unable to speak, unable to communicate with the people I love. And it's important that we have those conversations and that we have them frequently with the people we are close to. And I emphasize that over filling out documents because 
we can fill out documents and then sometimes we can't find them or sometimes they aren't honored. Sometimes we have a document in hand and the family says, I don't care what she put on that document. Here's what I want you to do. And what should be happening in those situations is what the patient would want to happen. So I would urge people, and I know it can be awkward and difficult at first, but if you will just look online, you will find lots of resources to help people begin these conversations and have these conversations about how how you want things to happen as your life comes near its end. Uh, how about sending me some of those links that I can include on my blog spot? I'll hunt some up and send them to you first thing in the morning. All right. <laughs> Well, Mary, this has been uh, important and helpful, uh, and I'm grateful uh, for the work that you did do uh, and for what you've provided us here. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for, for doing this. And I know that this is just the tip of the iceberg, that there are other things that need discussing. Uh, and so hopefully we'll get to do that. So... <laughs> <laughs> but that, that'll, that'll be up to you. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace. Yeah.